When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I uh, give you our 39th president, Jimmy Carter. Oh, come on! Beach history's greatest monster! Welcome to the 15th episode of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello Mark and hello to everyone else. On December 12th, 1952, a young American naval officer is lowered into a malfunctioning Canadian nuclear reactor. He's part of a larger Canadian-American team uh, trying to deal with a near disaster at this experimental nuclear project. That young naval officer is James Earl Carter. And 25 years later, he would be President of the United States of America. Now, a man obviously possessed of a great deal of physical courage and of a sense of duty, ends up symbolising almost the worst of the American presidency, uh, a derided and often satirised time in American politics. How do we end up there? And that's what we're going to look at over the next two episodes of American History 2, Jimmy Carter's America. Well, thank you very much for that lovely opening vignette, Malcolm. Uh, and yes, so this is basically part, it's episode 15A, um, as on our first attempt to, um, to record this podcast, which took place last week and was befallen by technical gremlins, which we're just overcoming now, uh, we found that we couldn't squeeze the 1970s and Jimmy Carter into one podcast. Who knew? So we divide, decided to divide it up into two chunks. In this first section, we're going to be kind of looking at it from what's happening in America, and how America is dealing with the challenges of the 1970s, of which there were plenty. Um, but before we go into that, uh, just kind of a quick word on the podcast itself. Obviously, we've been away for a while now, Malcolm. Um, yes, we have. When we when we left off, we, 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 we promised grand dreams of, a, of, a, of many a podcast on the revolutionary 1960s, and then we kind of got together afterwards and decided that it wasn't a good idea. Well, I mean, I think reason being is we've done a number of podcasts now on the 1960s and perhaps there's an opportunity to look at other decades uh, in American history. And we can always come back to issues in the 1960s. Uh, the reason being is we've been teaching uh, a summer school uh, on, called the Revolutionary 1960s. Uh, but that'll give us plenty of food for thought, I think, for the future. And we can come back to issues raised in that summer school and various things we've been looking at there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so uh, we've decided to tackle this topic, and this is going to be released, as I said, in two parts, the first coming out in July, the second one in August, um, and after that we have some other topics in the in the pipeline already for when the semester uh, gets back going in September, the university semester, and that'll, you'll start seeing a more scheduled appearance of the podcast when things return to normal. Over the summer we're all busy fitting in holidays and trying to do actually some work of our own, um, so it can get a bit crazy, but anyway... Let's get back to Jimmy Carter and the 1970s. So if, if we think about the 1970s, it's often remembered, recalled upon as an age of limits. 
um, as a time of questioning American exceptionalism. The, you've got problems with you know the oil price is soaring, which sort of defines the decade. Inflation, unemployment, the kind of rust belt of America starts to be known as all the blue collar and blue collar industrial jobs start to fall apart, and it's sort of a time when liberalism becomes discredited, um, and conservative populism becomes a bigger idea. So yeah, and I think the the, the influential columnist Joseph Alsop. Um, described it as, quote, the very worst year since the history of life began on Earth. So, Malcolm, why is the 1970s somewhat of a forgotten decade, um, kind of squashed in between, you know, the 1960s and the 1980s as it is? I think because certainly in American history, people see both those decades that you mentioned, the 60s and the 80s, as in somehow eras of great change, uh, I mean, people kind of look back in the 60s with a, as we've been teaching about over this summer, uh, with almost a rose-tinted nostalgic, oh, you know, if you can, if you can remember it, you weren't there. It's kind of like changes in music and culture and society. There's civil rights. There's all sorts of stuff going on. There's great political change. There's hope with Johnson and his great society. And then there's the kind of like the, the disaster of Vietnam and all this kind of thing. In the 80s, you have, you know, the, the end of the Cold War comes at the end of the 80s. You have Reagan promising kind of, you know, a, a new dawn for America and all this kind of thing. Whereas the 70s are often looked back upon as an era of economic crisis, of queues for petrol, of terrible fashion decisions in the form of flares, uh, all these, <laughs> these kind of things. And so the 70s are often seen as kind of this in-between decade. But actually, I would argue the 70s are incredibly important, and perhaps even more important than the 1960s and the 1980s. Okay, I mean, do you for, have like if you had to pick like one example for why you would why you would say that? What what's kind of give me one thing that happens in the 1970s that that showcases its importance? I think there's the situation regarding the Middle East. I think is incredibly important, and that many issues come out of that. And one I think is this transition of power to the oil producers of the Middle East. Uh, which is incredibly important, we'll talk about that more. And also at the very end of the 1970s, and I think this is an incredibly important outcome of dramatic changes that are happening in the 70s, is the rise of what we would recognise as modern uh, political Islam with the Iranian Revolution at the start of 1979. And I think that is an incredibly important change that takes place at the end of the 1970s that still has ramifications for us today. Yeah, and uh, I mean the the president that is probably most associated with the nineteen seventies, um, and its associated challenges is probably inarguably Jimmy Carter. I mean, obviously Richard Nixon is the most remembered of the president from the nineteen seventies, but he's seen as part of the end of the long nineteen sixties. Uh, you know, Watergate is sort of seen as putting a lid on that era, and then you have the presidencies of Ford and Carter. Um, and I think this connects into your comment you said at the start, you know, the 1970s, an age of limits for America. I think Nixon's presidency and perhaps later Ford represents this, this age of limits. We see that Nixon with Watergate vastly exceeded presidential authority. And now there's a move towards to place limits on presidential authority. Vietnam demonstrates that there are limits to the American power to contain communism within a Cold War context. And it cannot fight these wars and win. You know, America is defeated in Vietnam, whichever way you choose to spin it, it's a defeat for the United States. And America seems to be a declining power 
at this time it's no longer the great super it is a superpower but it's a decline is this superpower. something new though is it not arguable that americans have always been worried that they're in decline i mean what is it is, is the 1970s new in this regard i think there are very dramatic demonstrations of decline in terms of I mean, vietnam is critical economic decline is critical and american dependence on foreign oil and that shows that you know america can it kind of gives the lie to the entire exceptionalist idea yeah, I don't. I don't think we can overplay how important, you know, the black gold is to this decade. I, I mean, like to our, our to our lives ever since then. You know, like the fluctuations in the oil price define many ways how many people in the West live, and then you know even beyond. Um, and you know, this is the first time it really begins. The nineteen seventies is when it first hits home to the population that this is the case. Yep, and I think the Nixon is the first president to have to deal with this in 1973, the oil crisis that comes out of uh, Arab-Israeli conflict uh, and the decision of OPEC, uh, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, made up of countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, who decide to place uh, oil embargoes on those countries, especially the United States and various European states who have supported Israel. There's also another part of this. Part of this is a reaction as well on the part of the oil exporters to the Nixon shock of the early 1970s, where Nixon has essentially ended the, the Bretton Woods system, the post-World War II system of economic independence and uh, the free world, in air quotes. Gold, you know, uh, sorry, dollars can no longer be converted into gold, and the idea of fixed exchange rates between currencies is, is effectively abandoned. At this point. And that creates, me. we don't have time to go into that, but this creates major ripples and major shocks throughout the world economy. And so it's Arab-Israeli conflict and the Nixon shock are the reasons why you end up with this 1973 oil crisis, where prices go through the roof, mm-hmm. absolutely through the roof. But one of the reasons for this is to do with Iran and America's relationship with the Shah, who's the paramount ruler of Iran, and who's been given tacit permission by Nixon in the early 70s to raise oil prices as much as he wants. Something which I'm sure we'll come back to in the next podcast when we're looking more at Mm -hmm. at foreign events. But yes, bear in mind throughout this entire podcast, oil is king, you know. Um, It's no longer king cotton, it's now king oil. Um, So, obviously we have the, the, the very short interlude presidency of Gerald Ford. Um, who comes in after Nixon's res- you know resigned in disgrace before before he can be impeached, and Ford's presidency is often defined just by his his pardoning of Richard Nixon and what was arguably the sensible thing to do to get the nation over what it co- what he called its long national nightmare, um, but Ford is ends up ends up losing in 1976 to Jimmy Carter. Now, who's Jimmy Carter, Malcolm? Jimmy Carter is, well, a southerner. I mean, there's an, it's an important defining feature of Carter. He's from, he's from Georgia. Uh, his father was a peanut farmer and peanut warehouse owner in Georgia. And he was an ardent segregationist. He was an ardent fan of segregation between, between the races, in air quotes. And this actually has an effect on, on Jimmy Carter, uh, who reacts to this and becomes... Uh, anti-segregationist. So he grows up in this environment uh, in the South. He joins the Navy uh, in 1946, I think it is, uh, maybe slightly before that, Uh, and is seen as a man who's going someplace in the Navy. He trains in the 
the very early nuclear navy, when they're developing nuclear submarines, he becomes a protege of Admiral Hyman Rickover, who is the man behind the American nuclear navy. And it's interesting that Carter is the only US president to have direct nuclear knowledge and nuclear experience. He knows how reactors work. He knows how nuclear weapons work. So his Navy career is vital. His Navy career is very important. He gives up his Navy career in the early 50s. He's seen as a man, he's potentially an admiral. We think he's going to reach a a very high position. But he gives it up because of the death of his father and he has to go back and look after the family business. So he, he resigns his commission. He leaves the Navy and goes back to Plains, Georgia, his hometown, to start looking after the family yeah. farm, essentially. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole section on this on, uh, like, I mean, for a lot of these shows, it's quite good if, I always rewatch the kind of PBS American Experience documentaries on them, just to kind of get a flavour for the times and everything, and the one on Jimmy Carter makes a big play on his dad's death, because he goes home to Georgia, and uh he finds that almost the entire community has came out to say goodbye to his dad, and you mm-hmm. know, like that. And his dad, as you said, is an ardent, ardent segregationist. Yeah. But yet the program recounts how, like you know, white and black sort of actually recount nice things that his dad did, and this sort of has an effect on Carter. For he goes, well, actually, to gain respect, you know, to to make any impact in the world, you need to you need to gain status in society mm-hmm. uh, from which you can do good deeds, and therefore you like. Well, you know, working your way at the navy might be might be great for your own personal career. It won't give you the status and influence that perhaps being, you know, the head peanut farmer in Plains, Georgia, or just outside Plains, Georgia. Plains is the biggest town of what four hundred people nearby. You know, real rural area. Yeah. That's where the influence lies. And I don't know if the documentary overplays that. Or not. Well, I think I think it maybe slightly overplays mm-hmm. that incident, but I think it is. It says something wider about Carter, and something we'll come back to when we talk about his uh, political career. I think there's two other things that's important to highlight about about Jimmy Carter. And the first of those is his marriage to Rosalind Carter. And Rosalind Carter is a very strong, independently minded, intelligent woman uh, who uh, is a partner in, in his marriage. Uh, and especially when we get to him being president, she's a very, very important figure in Carter's presidency. We'll come back to Rosalind's influence. So we, we can't really kind of you know discount Carter's marriage and the importance of Rosalind Carter as a figure in American politics during Carter's presidency. Yeah, I mean, it's said that she's the most important first lady since Eleanor Roosevelt, isn't it? Yes, most yeah. cert- well certainly the most active first yeah. lady since Eleanor Roosevelt. She does an immense amount. I mean she goes abroad as the president's representative, almost in a diplomatic role, especially in like uh, South and Central America and all that kind of thing. So she's a very important figure. And I think the second point, which is perhaps one of the most important points, and it's where a lot of Carter's ideas about morals and ethics and decency come from, is his very devout uh, religious beliefs. Uh, he's brought up a Southern Baptist and then... Uh, later on becomes born again, becomes a a born again uh, Christian. And his religious beliefs and his faith are a great influence on Carter. Uh, A lot of his ideas about moralism and human rights stem from his very deep-seated religious and genuine religious beliefs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite funny thinking of Jimmy Carter as a born again Christian in one sense because, I mean, you have George W. Bush made a big play about who he was a born again Christian, but you know all of the rebel things he did before he was a born again Christian. Um, whereas Jimmy Carter was already like you know the height of morality and respect, you know, before he actually becomes uh, a born again Christian. But I mean, talk to me a little bit about so Carter breaks through as a Georgia state senator in the sixties. Yes, 
and is seen as a bit of a loner, quite independent-minded senator that you know, kind of up on his high horse about the issues and not really willing to get uh, into the debate. He then loses in 1966, I think it is, to Lester Maddox, who's an ardent segregationist in Georgia. And, but he wins in 1970. Talk to me a wee bit about how he wins in 1970. So these are his gubernatorial campaigns yes. in Georgia. So after he's been a state senator, uh, he yep. runs for governor. His, 19, his, his gubernatorial campaigns are interesting. Despite his anti-segregationist attitude, Carter realises that in order to gain political power, he needs to appeal to segregationists and needs to appeal to segregationist sentiment. And he uses that in his election campaigns quite cleverly and quite astutely, uh, I would suggest. But when he gains power, and this is a, this is a kind of like typical of Carter, when he gains power, he starts instituting policies and ideas that go against the, the, you know, the will of those people that are elected him. So he goes against segregationist thinking and against segregationist ideas. It's quite a complicated situation, the way he deploys ideas of race and segregationism. It's very much ends and means politics, isn't it? I mean, because 1970, he really does do the dog whistle stuff, you know. Oh, yes. black, black leaders are very afraid. Because like, yeah. they, they've endorsed these, uh, they've generally endorsed Carl Sanders, I think, who he's running against. But, but Carter goes and gets all the votes of these people who still lament the days before the Civil Rights Act, you know, probably members of white citizens' councils or, um, you know, taking part in more um, anti- civil rights measures and he gets them to vote for him and then he's in an inaugural address he turns around and goes we need to get past this race thing yeah you know let's everybody has equal chance for jobs not just civil rights for jobs and housing and everything like that and uh, you know people that have voted for him are standing there going what 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 in there um but yeah so carter gets elected in 1970 i mean just uh, we'll probably want to get into his presidency soon but you can you say anything about his governor term that you know well, I mean, you know, Carter's gubernatorial term is is in, in many ways, I think this is important for his presidency, trying to craft an image that takes him beyond Georgia. He wants to become known as a figure, so she, he gets involved in uh, various organisations like the Trilateral Commission, which aims to improve foreign relations between America and Europe and all that kind of thing, uh, in 1973. And this is in one way to get him increasing exposure for a potential presidential run, because he's already thinking about this kind of thing, and another way because he knows he lacks foreign policy experience, which is vital for a presidential run, and he wants to gain that. So he's on this trilateral commission to try and, try and gain that. But we do, I don't think we want to spend too much time thinking no. about Carter's gubernatorial years. No, no. I think that the only other thing to say was there was kind of seeds there, there was kind of, or signs there that um, Carter wasn't very good at the politicking. He, he tended to, he tolerated other legislatures rather than wanted to embrace them, you know. I, I think Carter, and some of this stems from his moral standpoint, he doesn't like uh, the granting of political favours he doesn't like nepotism. He doesn't like cozying up to vested interests, all that kind of thing. He wants to avoid He's that. He's the anti-Lyndon Johnson. He wants, <laughs> yeah, he wants to avoid that entirely. Yeah. But that just ends up winding up the people he's trying to work with. Yeah, he doesn't do pork barrel politics. He doesn't do pork barrel politics at all. There's no pork and there's no barrel. So, let's think about the 1976 presidential election. When those two charismatic titans <laughs> of American politics, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, I should I should say that I have studied Ford and Carter quite a lot, mainly in a foreign policy context. I got to like them yeah. as individuals. 
I, I found certain things I liked about these individuals. But we won't get into that. Let's talk about the 76 presidential election. Yeah, it was interesting you say the, the, the charismatic thing there, you know, mockingly, because I think did they, they have a presidential debate in 1976 and technology fails and there's about 30, 40 minute gap where they're just stood there looking at the camera because there's no sound and like commentators say after it was the most interesting like 30, yeah. 40 minutes of the entire debate. But I mean, Carter gets elected largely. I mean, first he gets a Democratic nomination because of the disarray of his Democratic opponents. I mean, classic case of underestimating him as well. But the liberal wing of the Democratic Party is divided again, divided between a few candidates, and the, the centrist wing aren't really sure who they're nominating. And Carter is one of these first people to really run early. Like, he announces mm. really early and goes after the caucus votes in Iowa and votes in New Hampshire. And, like, when, when the New Hampshire primary rolls around, the peanut brigade is their nickname from Georgia, yeah. you know, like, storm north and, like... Meet thousands upon thousands of New Hampshireites. I have no idea how you say New Hampshire people from New Hampshire, um, and so he gets the Democratic nomination almost. I mean, by accident. I mean, well, by his own hard work. I mean, but, but by he accident, does, he, he covers a huge amount of ground. He puts himself in front of people. He tries to make himself a national figure, and he also appeals to different constituencies within the United States. So, for example, good old George Wallace. Yeah. Is still around. Uh, in, in he's recanting his views by now. Well, isn't he? Wallace, he's, he's still a lot more extreme than Carter. Yeah. But Carter appeals to Southern Democrats yeah. by presenting himself as a moderate favourite son. Yeah. You know, I'm a I'm a Southerner. I'm a Georgian. You know, favourite son. Look at me, former kind of you know governor of Georgia. All that. How can you not vote for me? Presents himself as a moderate Southern candidate to Southern Democrats. Yeah. And that brings in a lot of votes for, for from the South for him. Yeah, exactly. He wins a big primary in Florida, and that sort of people go, wow, okay, this guy's actually a serious contender. But after getting the Democratic nominations, he's up against, you know, Gerald Ford, as you said, you know, an inherently decent man, but, you know, not, not the most charismatic of figures, who is struggling with this economy that's starting to hit the tank, this age of limits. And Ford is sort of given this option by his economic advisors who say, like we can pump the economy a wee bit before the election, make it look good like Nixon did in 72. Of course, there's going to be a fallout at the other end, mm. you know, once you've stopped pumping the economy. Um, but Ford, as I said, quite a decent guy goes, I'm not going to do that. Um, and so, and Ford is still struggling as well with this image of having pardoned Nixon and his association to Watergate. And so Car one of Carter's huge themes in 1976 is, I'll never lie to you. You know, screaming, saying that over and over again to the American people, you can trust me. I'll never lie to you. I'm an honest guy. I'm a born again Christian. I have, you know, beliefs that I, that I, my, my morality says that I will be open and honest to you. Something that the American people wanted to hear in 1976. You know, something that people nowadays still say, oh, I wish they would just be honest, goddamn politicians. You know, um, well, I mean, it's like, you know, the, and, and a good example of that is the, the crisis that faces New York. During this 1976, New York is in a financial crisis and Ford refuses to give any federal help to New York. I mean, New York's going broke. The city yeah. is going to die on its backside uh, if it doesn't get financial help. And there's the famous uh, headline, uh, I think it's, was it Ford, Ford, to, Ford to New York, yeah. go to hell. Is it drop dead? Drop dead, dead. that's yeah. the one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, but Carter... You know, as candidate, you know, as candidate, as a presumptive kind of like presidential figure, tours New York, sees various kind of grave images of what the city's like and everything, and he says, "I'm not going to lie to New York. I'm not going to tell you to drop dead. 
yeah. you know, I'm going to be a president for all the people in all the cities and all the places in America. Yeah. So, and I think there's another thing that, that Ford tries to tap into, and I think this is one of the reasons why we can explain Carter starts the year with a pretty big lead in the polls. He's got a minimum 15 point, like not the year, he starts the, the campaign. The campaign, he's sorry. The yeah, last yeah, few yeah. months leading into it, he comes out of the Democratic camp convention looking all like with a 70% approval rating and uh, about a 25 point lead by some polls. And yeah, you, I'll let you continue to explain what you're saying there. But this declines throughout the campaign. There's a few reasons for this. And one really interesting one is 1976 is the bicentennial US Declaration of Independence. All the bicentennial celebrations are going. And who gets to appear at all the major events? It's not Carter. It's the president. Yes, Ford. He gets to present himself as, a, as an American figure. This is the bicentennial. This is the most you know, important thing to happen in this in this year. And Ford gets to position himself at the centre of that. And gradually also, Ford's campaign team get to grips with what Carter is doing. He's presenting issues, and we'll come back more to talk about foreign policy issues, but just to talk briefly about them, about human rights, about conventional arms control, about non-proliferation. And Ford's campaign do not know what to do with these at the start of the campaign, but the time you get to the end of the campaign, they're dealing with it. like They're addressing it in a very serious way, for example, nuclear proliferation, which Nixon and Kissinger pretty much ignored. But we'll come back to that in the next podcast when we talk about it. Yeah, and on domestic issues as well, I mean, Carter isn't taking stances. He's he's running two sides of both issues. You know, he might... He might and, you know, hint to one group of northeastern liberals about how happy he is with abortion. You know, that's fine. You know, he might be against it, but he's fine for that. Abortion, which by now is a huge issue mm-hmm. um, after the Roe versus Wade decision in 1974. But then he might be down south and he'd be like, no, no, I, I'm, I'm personally against abortion. You know, this is just sort of to a random example. But basically, Ford, Carter was running a campaign on his personality, his honesty. He wasn't running it on issues. And this begins to hurt him because he won't take a stand on issues and Ford campaign points that out. And he's also, he also makes a strange decision to do an interview with Playboy. Um, That noted politically commentating journal. Exactly, exactly. Which is still controversial in its existence in 1976. Half of America wishes Playboy doesn't exist. So the fact he even does the interview gets him into trouble. But then he starts trying to explain his religion and his morality. He gets into talking about how he how he has lusted after other women in his heart, how he's committed adultery in his heart. Not saying that he's ever cheated on you know Rosalind. Just saying I have I have found other women attractive. Shock horror, you know. Um, so and this sort of backfires on him, and he and it and it plays into this thing that the press always found Jimmy Carter a bit weird. You know, they, the cynical sort of Washington press always found Carter's southernness and born-again Christian thing a little bit strange. And the Playboy interview just adds to that. And all these things make make it so that the election is a razor-thin victory for Carter. Absolutely razor-thin by the end. But going back to the Playboy interview, you can see what Carter was trying to do. He's presenting himself as the moral candidate, as the humanitarian candidate as a, a candidate of genuine faith and belief, but a candidate who is wanting to be a leader for Americans of all creeds and all faiths, or no faith yeah. at all. But what he's trying to do with that interview, you can see what he's aiming for. He's trying to say, I am not infallible. I am, yeah. I'm just human, and I have human fa- failings, and I will sin like all the rest of you, even if it's just sinning in my mind. So he's presenting himself as human with human failings. 
And you can see what he's aiming to do. He's not trying to be holier than thou. Yep. But it backfires on him, as you, as you pointed out. And he wins the election by a... It's a pretty thin margin. Yeah, and he has won it as well. One of the other themes of his campaign was anti-Washington. He ran it, you know, it's, it's sort of stereotypical to run against Washington nowadays. But, you know, it wasn't so much back then. But Washington runs as this, you know... Uh, sorry, Carter runs as this, you know, Washington's this corrupt, cynical place where nothing good gets done when you get all this pork barrel politics and everything. And he gets there, and then he has to deal with these people. And Carter's not very good at dealing with these people. And that's the thing, he alienates Congress, or yeah. large sections of Congress, by being unwilling to engage in the kind of uh, you know, political favours, pork barrel politics. He stops serving them nice breakfast. This is a bit. This is a big issue for like Tip O'Neill, the yeah. Democratic leader yeah. in the House and Congress. Oh, Tip O'Neill like mocked Carter's moralism. He used to keep a prayer scorecard for the amount of times like you know Carter would start a prayer in the White House and yeah. stuff. And, you know Tip O'Neill, a typical sort of Boston Irish type politician from Massachusetts, and you're just you know the clash couldn't have been uh, couldn't have been greater there. But talk to me a wee bit because I mean the, we we mentioned at the beginning the oil crisis more than anything. Uh, domestically shapes Carter's like domestic politics what he, what he does throughout his presidency um, so talk to me a wee bit about that right so by the time Carter comes to the presidency we've had the the first oil shock as it referred to in 73 and this is I mean this has got lingering lasting you know implications oil prices have gone up and gone down but it's basically they're staying high Oil supplies need to be addressed. In 79, again because of what's happening in the Middle East, we won't go into it in any, any great detail, but in 79 there is another oil shock. And a lot of this is to do with the Iranian revolution and with a whole lot of other stuff that's going on. But basically the oil shock again happens in 79 and prices go absolutely through the roof. I mean, there are huge queues for gasoline in America. There is, you know, there has to be kind of gasoline rationing. There's all sorts of measures have to be taken in order to try and reduce America's consumption of oil and of energy. So, I mean, obviously that's that's a great problem. Carter doesn't deal with it fantastically well. I mean, what he does is sort of admirable. He tries to give lecture after lecture to the American people to cut down their consumption, um, you know, to to put their heating lower. Um, I mean, he even has solar panels installed on the White House just to like kind of prove his own point. But he he, he gives what is it four or five speeches on on the environment um, before it, national audiences, but they they never really work. Well, his he gives up the fifth uh, presidential statement on energy. He's always doing these statements on energy and all that. Kind of generally, about half I mean, hour. people must be rushing home to it's, get in front of the TV his, set for those. It's his fifth one. Is the one that kind of defines for many people Carter's legacy as a president and his failure as a president. The famous malaise speech. He never. You know, people have said you know, he talks about a national malaise. Carter never uses the word malaise in it. The crisis of confidence speech is the best way to describe. So this is July fifteenth, seventy nine heart of oil shock territory and Carter goes on television July 15, 1979 to make his fifth statement on energy and this is the statement as I said defines Carter and he's not just talking about 
Is he not actually, was he not going to do the speech on energy? And then he went, you know what, I've done too many of these. It's not going to work. So he cancels he, it at first. Then he, he goes away and has like all these experts on American life, like sort of visit him at Camp David. No politicians to give him any political advice. But he has all these experts and stuff visit him. He has sort of, uh, I don't know, like sort of a spiritual uh, debate about the direction of America. He had, like his leading pollster tells him that for the first time, you know, Americans are telling pollsters that they, the next generation is going to be worse off than the current one, you know, so there's doubts and uncertainty about America's future. And by the time he sort of makes a speech you're talking about, it's not really about energy anymore, yeah. is it? It's still he's kind of it's still he's the, but you're you're right. It becomes a it becomes a much bigger thing. I'd like to read a couple of short paragraphs from it that from near relatively near the start of the piece uh, that I think kind of defines what Carter was trying to say and also the problems that people had with it. Uh, I know, of course, being president, government actions and legislation can be very important. That's why I've worked hard to put my campaign promises into law, and I have to admit, with just mixed success. After listening to the American people, I've been reminded again that all the legislation in the world can't fix what's wrong with America. So I want to speak to you first tonight about a subject even more serious than energy or inflation. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties. They will endure. And I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight everywhere in the world with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and political fabric of America. Okay, so you're reading that out there and, you know, your delivery is probably on par with Jimmy Carter's, uh, who, who wasn't a great auditor, at least. I, I mean, Thank I you the very much, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> um, but that, like, listening to that, the words, the sort of pessimism, the uncertainty, it stands in such contrast to all the other examples you have in your head of great American rhetoric. You know, like, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I, we'll sort this out, it's fine, you know. That's not what your country can do for you. That's what you can do for your country. Go make America great. I am not a crook. That one too. Probably not. Yeah, Yeah, no, 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 right. But I mean, the the, the point of that, Carter was telling, telling America stuff. I mean, in in this... Does he deserve credit? Okay. Okay. Right, so he's he's being honest as to what he thinks. Does he deserve credit for this honesty? Or, if he truly believed that was the case, is it not his job rather than to tell people and some people interpret it as blaming Americans for their own you know sort of crisis of confidence and malaise here is it not his job to recognize that's an issue but then to provide strong leadership um in a sense that like, you know for whatever you think of Ronald Reagan's politics right okay he he lifted up like he sort of he rediscovered American optimism in a sense and tapped into that it's one of the main reasons why he's about to kick Jimmy Carter's ass in 1980. Is it not Carter's fault for sort of self-indulging in this pity parade? I don't think it's a self-indulgent pity parade. One of Carter's qualities is his unwillingness to pander to people. And he did not, he saw the presidency as a very important role. And he did not believe in pandering to the American people. He thought the American people deserved the truth. And the president was the man to give them that unvarnished truth. And perhaps his truth was a little too unvarnished. (laughs) 
But he believed in telling the truth. We are in the midst of it, so we need to do something about this. Carter's kind of like always given stick for this speech. In the polling done in the immediate aftermath, his popularity goes up by a huge, by about eleven percent. Yeah, but it could go a few days later. Ah, ha, ha, ha. But that's nothing to do with the the speech, really. There's a whole lot of other stuff that happens because two days later, Carter fires a big chunk of his cabinet, mm-hmm. and that more than anything is seen as representative of disarray in government. It's not the crisis of confidence speech. It's the perception that there is disarray in government, that Carter is not controlling his cabinet, that there is no agreement within the cabinet on the direction of American policy at home and abroad. That's what leads to a kind of a massive like, boom, falling off in Carter's popularity ratings. But the speech and the feedback Carter gets from the American public shows a great degree of Sympathy for this position that Carter is saying, many people say, the president has said what needed to be said. And it's retrospectively, it's seen as like this terrible, kind of like, it caused Carter's presidency to fall apart. But it, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Yeah. And also, Carter's presidency had like 25% popularity before he gave the speech anyway, so it was, you know. But an 11% jump is still fairly substantial. And retrospectively, in decades later, especially when we're becoming kind of, you know, more attuned to climate change and all the issues that face the world. What Carter was trying to do with the American economy and American attitudes towards energy have become to be seen as much more prescient and far-sighted than was appreciated at the time. Okay, you've stuck up for, you've stuck up for your man well there. I, I, <laughs> I, feel, I, feel, I feel I should. Uh, one, one of us has to stick up for, for Carter. Uh, but, I mean, I think it's important to, you know, stress uh, that Carter's not... I mean, we've talked a lot about the oil crisis and all that kind of thing. There's a whole load of other domestic issues that I think we should pay attention to. And the question of whether or not Carter is liberal, conservative, how do we look at Carter's domestic policy? And maybe we should think uh, for a moment about, about some social issues that are prominent in the 1970s. Because I said at the start, the 1970s are of critical importance. Yeah. And I think they're of critical importance in a huge range of social issues. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I mean, first of all, let's, this is something I know you're definitely going to bring up in the foreign policy podcast. So I'm going to say it for the domestic policy. P- Carter isn't, in any way, I d- he doesn't have a concept of the whole. He doesn't see how things link together when it comes to domestic policy. You can't say he, he doesn't have a new deal. He doesn't have a great society. He doesn't have a new frontier. He doesn't have a big vision that way. Um, I just, and that's, I think that is an issue for Carter and this is yeah. one of the reasons why Carter's presidency is seen as a failure is he never presents an overarching yeah. vision to the people Problems come to his desk and he tries to deal with them one by one by one by one. Yeah, that's, that's generally it's how it's slightly been. silo mentality but as you said we'll cover that slightly more in the foreign policy uh, yeah. element. I mean Carter's, I mean if you want to take cultural issues first rather than going on to the sort of social issues. Um, Carter's very liberal on cultural issues, as far as I'm aware. I mean, he he was a big supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment for Women, which you know passed through Congress in the early 1970s quite easily. But is beginning by by the time Carter's in the White House, it's lost almost all momentum because it needs to be ratified mm-hmm. by enough states. I think it's about 30, 34 yeah. states, and they're not reaching that because the Equal Rights Amendment starts to be tarred with like you know. Basically, a conservative backlash is motivated, which which tries to paint supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment as like lesbians and abortion supporters, and just like people that hold very liberal positions. And obviously, abortion now is a huge issue, mm-hmm. on which Carter is a bit fuzzy. I'm not entirely sure how he how he stood on abortion, 
But yeah, I, think, I don't think he was. He wasn't a great proponent or opponent. I think he tried to fudge a middle. There was way. a bit kind of like flip flopping yeah. on that particular issue. Um, and but I mean, also as you said, he 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 appoints more women and African Americans and Hispanics and everything to government than never been appointed before. But he's not willing to to spend vast amounts of money on social programs to achieve more racial equality. Mm. That's one of the things where he differs from you know the great society liberals and stuff like that. He will not. He vetoes spending bills. He he basically he argues that the the age of you know this age of limits means that America no longer has endless coffers. The post war economic juggernaut is no longer thundering on, and you have to tighten your belts mm-hmm. um, to stop inflation. And so he angers a lot of great society liberals who are still in Congress and still and wanting more spending. On, on like kind of ghetto mm. problems and th- that that type of thing. And he, but he does also invite. He's the first uh, U.S. president to invite gay rights leaders yep. to the White House to discuss. He's a strong supporter of uh, of you know gay rights issues, which have you know come to prominence in the early nineteen seventies with the, the early kind of you know gay liberation marches uh, that happened in cities across America and all that kind of thing. So he's a president who is uh, you know engaging with these social and cultural issues. Uh, as well, uh, so I mean, I think in many ways there's a kind of there's a positive message comes out of Carter, but it's nuanced and complicated by a lot of the stuff that's going on. But he, do, I mean, he does things. He leads by example in this time of mm-hmm. you know trying to say America, you need to t- tighten your belts. He does things that that say I'm I'm different. The USS Sequoia, the presidential yacht, mm-hmm. is got rid of. Cuts down on the use of. Of limousines. I mean, there's the famous thing is uh, is inaugural, where instead of kind of like being transported in a limousine, uh, you know, through Washington, him and Rosalind and Amy, his daughter, get out and walk, and that that's meant to emphasise change from Nixon and from Ford and other presidents. He's a almost a man of the people kind of thing. He's getting out, and that's received very well. Just merely the fact the presidential family walking to the inauguration. Yeah. I mean, arguably more than all of these issues, one of the things that fails Carter is in the middle of his presidency, you have the Lance Affair, um, where one of his close associates is, is charged with corruption, is cleared, and, but there's a lot of murkiness and, you know, over the ethics of it all. And the, while it wouldn't be Carter dithers through loyalty to his friend before eventually getting rid of him, but it just sort of gets rid of the squeaky clean Carter image. You know, Carter had come in saying, I am different. And this said to the American people, no, you're not. Yeah. Um, Bert Lance doesn't help the situation. Neither does uh, Carter's slightly uh, wayward brother, uh, Billy. Uh, yeah, talk, talk to us a bit about Billy Carter. Billy Carter's an interesting figure. Carter, uh, Billy Carter comes to national prominence basically riding the coattails of his brother. Uh, and he plays up this beer-swigging southern good old boy Does he not image. have his own drink? He uh, puts his name to a brand of beer uh, called Billy Beer. Uh, and I think one of the adverts uh, says something along the lines of, uh, it's the best beer I've ever tasted, and I know I've tasted a lot. Which is kind of awkward when you know that Billy Carter is at best a borderline alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, a man with, I mean, he has genuine issues and needs help and everything. And his brother tries to do a lot to help Cart, Billy Carter. But the trouble is he also gets involved in business dealings yeah. with uh, Muammar Gaddafi's Libya and gets money for the Libyans. And this causes huge problems uh, for his brother. 
when there has to be a Justice Department investigation into the business dealings of Billy Carter, he's been getting money from Libya, a country that to all intents and purposes is an enemy of the United States, uh, especially under, under Muammar Gaddafi. So Carter's squeaky clean ethical image starts to come under fire about the Lance Affair and the, the Billy Carter, uh, yeah. Billy Gate, as it's referred to in the tendency of attaching Gate to any political scandal. Yeah, yeah. It sounds a bit too close to Billy Goat as well. Yeah, well, um, be, yeah. So, I mean, by the end, by the time Carter leaves office, it is, it's kind of undeniable that he's presided over economic decline in a sense, you know, unemployment worsening. You know, if if Ronald Reagan could easily, and I can't remember if he did or not, run an advert saying, are you better off now than you were four years ago, like under Carter, it's, most people would say no. Um, and that's not... Def, that's not definitely you can't just pin all these like, I always find it quite funny how people pin economic circumstances at the foot of the president who has very little power over the economy mm. unless he's got his own party in congress following his lead and so I'm gonna I mean I, th I think the for your foreign policy answer is going to be really interesting in this but in terms of domestic policy do we think Carter is a victim of circumstances more than other presidents or is he just unsuited to being President of the United States um, and presiding over the economy. I think Carter was, at his core, a very moral, decent man. And perhaps too decent and too moral to be president. He was unwilling to engage in the kind of political horse trading and backstabbing. Yeah. The worst thing you could say to Carter was, oh, this is going to be good for you politically. Yeah. And he was unwilling to pander to people, to Congress, to the electorate, to allies abroad, and things like the crisis of confidence speech. He's not going to sugarcoat it for Americans. He's like, look, we're having a crisis. We need to change. We all are responsible for this. He was engaging in a form of kind of collective responsibility. Uh, but then again, Carter didn't help. And I think we'll come on to talk about more about why his presidential style didn't help. When we talk about foreign policy, mm -hmm. how his managerial style, his seeing everything in silos, and the divisions that exist in his cabinet, create problems for Carter, and they become, I think, most prominent within the foreign policy context. Yeah, no, and uh, I think just to conclude this this part A, uh, I'm gonna the the press often referred the press were merciless with Jimmy Carter, um, in terms of sort of taking the mick out of him and portraying him as weak and. They, they they start nicknaming him Jimmy Hoover, you know, a link back to the, the, the terrible failed presidency of Herbert Hoover, which we discussed in another podcast and how, how Hoover actually predated a lot of things that FDR did but mm. wasn't given any credit for it. And they actually have kind of a lot of bizarre things in common, you know, they were both former engineers, they both kind of vault over the the party regulars of, a, you know, the, each, each of their own party to win the nomination. They're both not really ideological, they're technocrats. Um, and they both struggled to like get anything done with their leaders in Congress and alienated those in their own party. And of course, both are remembered as entirely as failures and hang around the noose, like the, the their own party's neck for the next thirty years. But also, Jimmy Carter's economic conservatism often is probably forgotten. Stuck predates Reagan's economic conservatism of the early eighties, just like Hoover's. Reconstruction Finance Corporation and other active government moves predated Roosevelt's New Deal. And also, 
Reagan's sort of revival of the cold warrior image is actually begins with Jimmy Carter. And that's what we're going to discuss on the next podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.